Welcome to the Book Blast podcast, our international podcast series, Bridging the Divide, Translation and the Art of Empathy, showcases a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world being published this year in the UK by 10 leading independent houses and a special guest. This interview is being recorded via Zoom during the COVID-19 lockdown. I'll now hand over to my podcast co-host, Lucy Popescu. I'm delighted to be able to interview Tommy Waringa and his English translator, Sam Garrett. There is a chilling beauty to many bleak landscapes and Tommy Waringa's stark portrait of a remote Dutch community, expertly translated by Sam Garrett, reminds us that the same is true in literature. The Blessed Rita is a compelling portrait of the forgotten and Waringa makes a convincing case for empathy with those living on the margins of society. Just to set the scene, Paul and Hedwig live in rural East Netherlands, close to the German border. The middle-aged friends enjoy an awkward bachelor existence and go on holiday together once a year, usually to Asian countries with an accessible sex trade. Back home, Paul visits Club Pasha to see his favourite prostitute, Rita. Tommy, what drew you to the subject and themes of the Blessed Rita? My father, Lucy, hello. Thanks for having me, by the way. Uh, no, it was my father. Um, it was quite, it's, it's actually quite a simple autobiographical uh, idea that brought me to this book because I was reminded of the period in my life when my mother left my father and left me and my father behind in a, in a big old uh, farmhouse. And... Um, suddenly my father had responsibility over me and uh, he had to take care of me and he had no idea how to do that. And he learned himself, and that was actually the, the, the start of the book, he learned himself then five basic meals, to cook mm-hmm. five basic meals. Uh, they were all with potatoes. Yes. <laughs> and um, so I, uh, and I, I found it when I was uh, in my 40s already. I thought I've, I suddenly, the, the memory I've, struck me as being quite moving. This poor man being left by his wife uh, uh, and left with his uh, 11-year-old son, it was actually the first time that we really met. So um, I thought that there's, there's a book in that because it was in this remote area of Twente, which is in the east of the Netherlands. Um, two men left behind in a left behind uh, area of the country yeah, um, yeah. So that that's what brought me to it. Paul and Hedwig aren't hugely sympathetic characters. So how did you ensure we would empathise with them? I never thought of that actually. Uh, maybe I, I thought they they made good characters, and if there are if they are sympathetic, it's by accident. Tommy, you seem to make a habit of writing about marginalised characters. In Little Caesar, Ludwig is restless, yearning for stability, full of irrational decisions and erotic obsessions. In your last book, The Death of Murat Idrissi, 19-year-old Murat is just one of many Moroccans who lives in the slums and dreams of working in Europe. What draws you to write about men on the margins? Um, I was in Morocco once and there I found a... um... Uh, who's, who's, who's of, again the um, 
I've been away from the world quite a while, uh, but <laughs> since since the crisis broke out, uh, maybe you can help me. Who's the writer again? Who, who lived in the American writer? Uh, Paul Bowles, yes, Paul Bowles, thank you. And he wrote that luxury actually blurs your vision. And um, I I think the same way. I, I don't find my material in cities uh, nor in luxury. Um, for me, stories lie in, uh, in maybe in, in, in poorer circumstances. That's where I find my, uh, my, my material. Their world is devoid of meaningful relationships with women. Was this deliberate? If it's there, then it's deliberate. But that's, I'm so sorry to say that. But um, no, it's, um, it is, of course, deliberate. And um, for, for the Blessed Rita, I, um, I started off with, uh, with my own biography. And then I uh, sort of uh, went on with uh, men whom I still know, who live in that area. People, I, men I went to school with. We went to a Catholic boys' school at the time. Um, many of them still live with their parents, and they, uh, in, the, in the end, they bury their parents. Uh, they never left home. They never had um, meaningful relationships with women. That's why, for instance, Paul travels to Asia, as, uh, as you said in the introduction, yeah. um, to have... Um, his fair share of the deal. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's why he finds his erotic life. It is indeed a bit sad, but um, quite common. Did you grow up in a rural community? Yes, it's my background, yeah. Rita is the patron saint of lost causes. Faith seems to have fallen apart in this Catholic community. The church limps on and a Brazilian priest serves three parishes. As Paul observes, missionary work was coming back in style, but now it was the poor Europeans who needed help. Is there really no hope for characters like Paul and Hedwig? Are you suggesting that this lack of confidence in themselves is partly down to the erosion of faith? Um, partly, but this is something I, uh, I noticed in... I, I write a lot in monasteries. What you see there is that... Um, that actually the, the faith is fading away. And um, now there's a sort of uh, a turning around because now that the, 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 when we uh, Christianized, for instance, Brazilians or Argentinian, now they come back to Europe and uh, to, to make up for, um, well, they, they live on, in, many of them live in our monasteries now because otherwise they would be empty. And, um, in the Blessed Rita, there is indeed uh, a man of God who is who is actually from uh, from Brazil. So that you you can see actually what, what I try to do is to show what happens to a remote area uh, in these times of globalization. Yeah, because it it it, it influences. Uh, for instance, the Chinese are coming to to take over yeah. the the. the the restaurant in the village. Uh, there's a Brazilian um, uh, man of God, or how do you call that? Um, priest, vicar. A yeah, priest, priest. A priest, yeah. So there's a Brazilian priest. So globalization has its effect on, uh, on even on remote areas like, uh, like Twente. Many villagers have moved west. The Chinese and East Europeans have filled the vacuum. 
treated with barely concealed contempt by the remaining locals. Is this forgotten backwater a comment on the inequality of the European Union? It is a comment, maybe not so much of the European Union, but also uh, that the sense of being left behind is quite strong in this area. It partly has to do with, uh, with the European Union, but also with uh, national government. All the, the, the focus is on the, uh, the, 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 not on the rural area, but on, these, uh, on the Utrecht, Rotterdam, Amsterdam. So this, this uh, urbanized area, that's where the main focus is on. All the police is in this urbanized area and not in uh, Twente anymore. Uh, so the police leaves these areas and nowadays uh, war of drug lords actually take over. So they, uh, they are the ones who, uh, who are in charge in these areas. Quite sad. Yeah. Yes. I, so, sorry, I have one more, one more little anecdote to tell. There was a, uh, it is on the German border. And... Um, I was, I was walking there last because I did quite a lot of research because I know this area from my childhood, but uh, coming back there is important, I thought. So I went back and um, I asked the man who lived right on the border, I asked him where this uh, big border post was. This was a, a big stone slab, which had been there since the 15th century. And I asked him where it was. He said, if I tell, because it was gone suddenly. And I asked this farmer said, where is it? Has it been stolen? He said, yes. And I asked, you know, where, you know who did it? He said, yes. And I asked, can you tell me who did it, where the stone is? And he said, no, because if I tell you, tomorrow my house will be burnt down. Then I asked, and what about the police? And then he, he gave me this, this, this little smile and said, sorry, we don't have police in this area. Mm. So that's, 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 how the people, that's how people feel. Tommy, regarding empathy for your characters and their situations, I've previously described your approach as brutal but effective. Even the sparseness of your prose, reflected in Sam's masterly translations, magnifies the harsh reality of many of your characters and the need for our compassion. By writing about flawed characters, you remind us of our shared humanity. Was that always your intention? It's not so much as a as a as a humanist political agenda that I uh, that I follow. It's just that I look at these people, I find them, and uh, I wrote about it in my diary uh, because I started the diary in 2015 um, because I I didn't know where to go with this book. Then I remembered all these characters I knew from 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 my childhood and. It's very easy to make fun of them, for they have uh, very few achievements. They still live with their parents. Uh, you might call them sad, but the moment you know them, the moment there's a real that, that, that you're in real contact with them, all these ideas fade away. So I'm I'm, I'm interested in how people live and uh, how to live. So maybe that's that's an answer to your question that I yeah. uh, I don't I don't want to make fun of them because yeah. they in their own in their own right they are very uh, strong and uh, highly moral characters. And the problem problem is that 
I gave them another life in uh, in prose, which they didn't ask for. It's always the problem. How much can you take of someone's life? Um, and as a novelist, you're, of course, a very, a, a very chic thief. Um, so I thought, well, when I'm a thief, I don't want to rob them, although I'm a thief. Yes. <laughs> I, I want to, I want to give them a, maybe a, make them a little better than they are even. Yes, a little bit heroic. Yes. There is there is a little yeah. bit heroic in both of them, yeah. Yes, yes. That's what I give back to them. Sam, how did you become a translator? Oh, goodness. Lucy, I, I uh, became a translator. Actually, I studied journalism uh, at school in the United States and came to Holland. Actually, one of the one of the interesting things about the educational system in the United States is that you can become a, a, a journalist, you can become lots of things and never learn uh, another language other, other than English. I started as a, off as a journalist and I have always been a great lover of good stories. I think that I became a translator really because life moved me then finally to the Netherlands in the early 1980s um, after I met... Um, my partner, and we're still together after 40 years. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I moved to the Netherlands and I had very little to do the first two or three years because I wasn't allowed to work. I wasn't really even allowed to be in the country. So what was I to do? I was, I noticed, fascinated by this country, by this language, by this culture. And I think just a lack of, of any really constructive thing to do besides a few odd jobs that I have, I, I really immersed myself in, in Dutch and realized once I started reading a bit in Dutch and reading short stories and novels and things that there were things going on in Dutch literature that I really wanted my friends in the United States to be able to read. I thought, God, they would love this. And I think that's where my desire to become a literary translator was born, was with a desire to share things that somehow pleased me or challenged me or horrified me or whatever with, with my, my good friends who, who didn't have the advantage of being able to speak and read this, um, this minority language. Sam, how does translation unite people and increase empathy? Yeah. Well, there are, I guess there are a couple of things. I, I think that the translation, literary translation and good translation is basically a, a, an, an empathic move. I think that, that someone said once that, that although we translators think that we're, have to, that we're making decisions all the time, that there are really only two decisions that we make. One is either to leave the writer sort of in peace and to draw the reader closer to the writer, that's choice one you can make, or to say, I'm going to leave the reader in peace and I'm going to draw what the writer has done closer to the reader for their understanding. That that dichotomy, when you're making a decision like, am I, do I need to make this understandable for an audience or do I have to challenge my audience uh, in the same way that this writer maybe has challenged me in their own language? That choice and that consideration is always, always involves empathy. 
you're always either saying I'm being true to this writer. I, 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 I am trying to understand what they do and I'm trying to do what they did then on paper. Or you say, I have these readers and I feel for these readers and I want them very badly to understand what's going on here. So you're always being sort of uh, uh, swung back and forth between the two, but you're always involved in putting yourself in someone else's shoes. I think you've translated all of Tommy's books into English. No, unfortunately, I haven't. I, oh. I, I think uh, Tommy's first three novels, I, I, I haven't translated. I started with Joe Speedboat, which okay. sort of came at me as it did at an awful lot of people as a sort of a freight train kind of roaring onto this, under the <laughs> landscape of Dutch literature. And somehow I was, I was fortunate enough to be asked to do that book. Um, so that was my first one. That was my my baptism as far as translating uh, Tommy goes. Uh, but since then, I've translated, I think, four or five of, uh, of, of Tommy's novels. Almost everything that's come out since, yeah. What makes him such a special writer in your view? And in what way is his writing universal? Uh, let's see. I, what, what, makes, what makes Tommy a special writer, I think, is really that he is... Uh, such a craftsman. I, I've heard him, I've, I've I've heard Tommy say a number of times. I've been quoting this this thing, which uh, someone I don't know whether it was Isaac Babel himself or whether it was an admirer of Babel's Eisenstein talking about Isaac Babel's prose, who said something like, like "No iron can enter the human heart with such uh, effect as a period placed at just the right moment." Yes. Now, that's the thing. That's and that's that's what makes. Tommy in that way, a special writer too. He has realized that I think down to the soles of his writer's feet and, and goes for that. And that is a unique thing. And that also, uh, that's part of why it's, I've always I've loved translating Tommy's work is because then I am faced with a challenge of trying to get that period at just the right spot and to have that kind of impact uh, on the reader's part. That's unusual. Um, I think also that, and you said, what makes Tommy universal? What makes his writing universal? Yeah. I think that, I think it's, I think, I think it's universal because it's so specific in so, so many ways. It's, it's very grounded. It's grounded in life often. The characters who come sort of parading along in the books are people we believe in because they seem very real and often like people we've known or like people that maybe we've wanted to be or have absolutely not wanted to be at some point. And I guess I think that that when writing is universal it's because it's grounded so firmly in life it can be very specifically uh, a story about the eastern netherlands uh, twente it can be a story about boredom uh uh during the christmas holidays in amsterdam right after the second world war but if it's grounded if it's recognizable if it's real then it becomes universal no matter how how specific and how local the setting Sam, what were some of the challenges you faced when translating this text? I'm thinking in particular if there were any issues with the character's vernacular 
or if it was fairly straightforward? Uh, well, well, now it, it, I don't know that it was fairly straightforward. It was not. It's it, the Blessed Rita, even in Dutch, is not like a, a, a regional novel. So it wasn't the challenge. Wasn't trying to find. Um, some sort of imaginary idiom that would reflect the way these people spoke. And thankfully, that's really hard to do and often, often doesn't work, I think, especially in translation. It wasn't that. What the challenge was, really, I think, is that what Tony's done a very good job of is, is, is reflecting this sort of taciturn um, nature of conversation. Uh, I think especially in the rural Netherlands. I mean, Twente is, is, is a case in point, but Groningen up in the north of the country is also this famous, the people from the west of Holland laugh about it. It's, you know, why use five words if three will do? And why yeah. use three words if you can get away with one? That's, 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 that was a challenge to do sometimes because it seems to me that in English we generally speaking, tend to be uh, a bit more expansive than that. So one word answers to things, I think, that are, are, are hard to translate. That was a challenge at times. What, in your view, makes a good translator? I think that a good translator probably, well, that, this theme that you were talking about, this, this empathy. I think, I think a good translator, I think there are a couple of things. I think you... You have to have the, the the toolkit. I think you have to have sort of the writerly toolkit. So you you know how to do things. You know how to build a sentence in a in, in a certain way to create a certain effect. In the same way that a writer knows how to do that, and you have the uh, ability to think about that and to make decisions as far as that goes. So there's that technical side of it, which you really have to have. Uh, the, of course, the, the knowledge of the language and the culture, the very deep knowledge of both language and culture that it's necessary for a good translator. I'm completely convinced of that. And then also the, the empathy that you're talking about, somehow the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, whether it's the writer, whether it's the character that you're dealing with at that moment, whether it's the reader that you're imagining and saying, are they going to understand what's going on? I think those two things, I think there's a, a very hardware side and a, and a, and a, and an empathetic, very soft side to, to being a good translator. Does it matter if the reader hears the original language in the translation or do you aim for a seamless translation? seamlessness isn't something that I aim for in and of itself. That's, that's for sure. I, I, I guess if, if that happens, it's sort of a byproduct of uh, saying, Hey, I, I want the reader to, to, to have as clear an understanding to the reader to be bothered as little by my presence as possible. Um, that can lead to seamlessness, but I think it's not an objective that I have. I guess when you say can 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 a, should the reader be able to hear the original or Dutch in this case, and it, um, I I think that um, I think not at the level of uh, of the words and 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 syntax and this sort of thing. It shouldn't be the case, but I think that you that you're trying to convey often with good writing, you're trying to convey also a certain music or a certain rhythm or 
even a certain aesthetic and you're trying to do that. And, and that can be very particular. Those things can be very particular to a certain culture or a certain language. Um, and also, I think like an example, um, uh, the, the death of Murat Idrisi, even though there's like sort of this gruesome, well, I'm not, I'm not going to kind of going to blow the, the, the ending of the book. I'm not going to do a spoiler here, but even though there's this kind of gruesome secret being born along here, the end of the book and, and often through the book is very, it's very lyrical. These descriptions of the Spanish landscape and, and kind of the edginess in Morocco, that's all done with this almost kind of a painterly sort of feeling. And the very yeah. end of the book, this very bleak, I think that was the word that you used earlier, this very bleak scene at the end of the book is also in some funny way is very beautiful also. Yeah. It's like a composition, it's a painterly composition. So you can do all that. And maybe the reader's not expecting that. Maybe that's not part of their tradition to, to, to deal with a subject in that way. But then I can, then I, as a translator, I hope I can give them that and give them a bit of a feeling for, hey, this, things can be different. You can write differently about things. What are you both working on next? Sam, Tell me. your turn. My turn? Yes. Um, I'm translating a book by um, uh, a Dutch writer by the name of Manon Uphoff. Uh -huh. And uh, she's written a novel called uh, Falling is Like Flying. That's going to be coming out in Pushkin um, in the fall of 2020, inshallah. And then after that, I'm going to do a nonfiction book. I'm doing a book by Frank Westermann about, uh, about what it means to be human. Uh, so those are the two, those are my two projects sort of in the medium term. And I am uh, working, uh, of course, as I always do, uh, uh, working on a novel, but this one is going to be, uh, uh, yeah, 600 pages or so. So uh, still some work ahead. Goodness. So I'm, and, and I'm really sorry to, <laughs> to bother Sam with that in a year or two. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, okay, all right, all right. We'll, get it, we'll brace ourselves for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could we finish with a short reading in Dutch and then English? Fantastic. Um, Sam, shall we, uh, shall we do it from the, uh, from the fifth chapter? Okay, let's see. The beginning of the fifth chapter? Let's see. Um, Nad, after the first, more than 30 years geleden, it, it's called in Dutch. After, I, I'm going to have to hold on. It was, it was more than 30 years ago that he had gone into that field. I've got it. More than 30 years geleden was it that he here with his metal detector het veld in was gegaan. 1617 was hij toen en hij had daarna nooit meer iets gevonden wat belangrijker was dan de laars, het kompas en het vliegtuigwiel. Uit de hemel daalde nu een kraai neer. Een grote gezonde kraai met een grote gezonde honger. Hij landde op het open veld vlakbij een verwezen jonge haas, waarvan de moeder in de storm van de machines verloren was geraakt. De kraai zette een paar schommelpasjes, stond stil en schikte zijn veren. Met een schuin oog monsterde hij zijn prooi. Het hazenjong rende een eindje bij hem vandaan en drukte zich plat tegen de grond. Eerder op de dag lag het gras nog in regels te drogen. Hij had zich erachter kunnen verstoppen of erin weg kunnen kruipen. Maar nu was de aarde naakt en kaal. De kraai hupte achter hem aan. Hij had geen haast. De haas was klein en de akker was onafzienbaar groot. 
ach, ging het altijd maar zo gemakkelijk. Het diertje deed een dappere uitval. Vlak voor het tegen de kraai opbotste, sloeg het een haak, de eeuwige list van de haas. De kraai fladderde achterwaarts op en roeide meteen weer met een paar vleugelslagen naar hem terug. Hij was geen erg goede jager, maar de tijd was in zijn voordeel. Paul Kruse bekeek de ongelijke strijd vanuit de verte. Hij onderdrukte de neiging om met wapperende armen het veld in te rennen. Hij had gedachten over jagen en gejaagd worden. In de schaduw van de bomen hield hij zich onzichtbaar en bemoeide zich nergens mee. Alles moest zijn loop hebben. In het leven van de dieren, in dat van hemzelf. Paul Kruse, meer haas dan kraai. Solitair levend prooidier, hazenhart. Ver weg, aan de overzijde van de hoge bollende akker, reed een auto. Toen een trekker. Je hoorde ze nog een tijdje, dan was het weer stil. Alleen het gele land en hij aan de bosrand. De smiespelende beek daarachter. Het pijl was ongebruikelijk laag voor deze tijd van het jaar. Stil sleepte de stroom zich door het halfdonker onder de bomen. De bodem was rood van oer. De haas, zo groot als de hand van een meisje, begon op te geven. Hij drukte zich sidderend tegen de grond. Het was tijd en de tijd bediende zich van een zwart gerokt snaveldier. Het pikte naar je. Je voelde alles. Elke sabelhout, dacht Paul, maar je moest je harden. Het vroeg een sterk harnas om neutraal te zijn. Met zijn dolksnavel hakte de vogel op hem in. Paul knipperde niet met zijn ogen. Je moest je plaats in de voedselketen kennen, dacht hij. Je plaats in de voedselketen en jezelf wapenen. Nice. It was more than 30 years ago that he had gone into that field with his metal detector. 16 or 17 he was at the time. And after that he'd never found anything as important as the boot, the compass and the airplane wheel. Down from the sky, a crow descended now, a big, healthy crow with a big, healthy appetite. It landed in the open field, close to a young orphaned hare that had lost its mother in the storm of harvesters. The crow took a few rocking steps, stood still and ruffled its feathers. Its head cocked to one side, it sized up its prey. The young hare ran a ways away from the crow and pressed itself against the ground. Earlier in the day, the grass had still been lying in rows to dry. It could have hidden there or crawled beneath a pile of hay, but now the ground was stripped bare. The crow hopped along after it. It was in no hurry. The hare was small and the field was endless. Ah, if only it was always this easy. The little animal made a courageous sortie. Just as it seemed about to crash into the crow, it did a button hook a hare's old favorite trick. The crow flapped and hopped backwards, then reversed right away and rode its way forward again. The bird was not much of a hunter, but time was on its side. Paul Krusen watched the unfair fight from a distance. He repressed the urge to go running into the field, waving his arms. He had thoughts of his own about hunting and being hunted. In the shade of the trees, he kept out of sight and minded his own business. Everything had to run its course. In the lives of animals, in his own life, that of Paul Krusen, more hare than crow, solitary prey, rabbit heart. Far away, on the far side of the high rolling field, a car passed, then a tractor. 
You heard them for a while, then it was still. Only the yellow field and he in the shadow. The whispering brook back behind there, unusually low for the time of the year. The stream dragged itself quietly along through the semi-darkness beneath the trees. The bottom was red with ore. The hair, the size of a little girl's hand, was giving up. It pressed itself trembling against the ground. The time had come, and time took the form of a sharp-billed bird in widow's weeds. It picked at you. You felt everything, every saber cut, Paul thought, but you had to steel yourself. It took a strong suit of armor to be neutral. The bird lashed out at him with its dagger bill. Paul didn't blink. You had to know your place in the food chain, he thought. Know your place in the food chain and arm yourself. Thank you very much for your time and for giving us an invaluable insight into the Blessed Rita. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lucy. That was wonderful. The Blessed Rita by Tommy Waringa, translated by Sam Garrett, is published by Scribe and is available from online outlets such as Waterstones, Foils, Daunt Books, Hive and Amazon. To buy The Blessed Rita from your local independent bookseller, you can find your nearest store by visiting booksellers.org.uk forward slash bookshop search. This podcast is brought to you by Bookblast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal The Bookblast Diary or find us on Twitter at Bookblast. Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such, theme tune composer Edward Campbell, Tommy Waringa, translator Sam Garrett, and interviewer Lucy Popescu for taking the time to do the interview. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Book Blast podcast. Mm-hmm.